Again, good morning, LifePoint Church, man. We're so glad that you are here with us today. As you just said, my name is Andrew, and I have the privilege of serving as one of the student pastors at the Lewis Center campus. And man, I'm so honored to be I'm humbled to be with you this morning as we continue on in our new series. We're studying the book of Revelation together. If you are here this morning, you're our guest today. Maybe you're here for the first time. We'd love it. If you would just take a moment, you can take your phone out and scan the QR code that's on the seat in front of you. We ask you to do that for a couple of reasons. The first one is that when you go there, you're going to see that we have already made message notes for you today. So you can scan that code, go to the message notes, and it'll help you follow along, stay engaged throughout the service. If you're super ADHD like I am. You got to have something like that, so it's helpful. Uh, you'll also see there that there is a digital guest card that we've made for you. It'll take you less than 60 seconds to fill it out. You could do that right now as part of our service. And when you get to the bottom of that card, you're going to see that there's a list of five different ministries that we are already partnered with as a church. You can select whichever one means the most to you, and we'll donate an additional $5 to that ministry in your honor to give you the chance to do something good and kind just by being here with us this morning. And if you're not our guest today, you've been here before, then I could already probably guess where you're, what you're wondering. You're wondering, where in the world is Matthew and who in the world is this guy? Maybe you're slightly disappointed. It's okay. I get it. Matthew's awesome. We love him. Uh, here's the whole story. Apparently, the guy from Florida isn't actually that afraid of the cold at all, as he and his wife were out in the 40-degree cold this morning running the Columbus Marathon. So they're just, they're just acclimating right to the cold. I don't, you know, it is what it is. I don't, I don't love the cold that much, but I guess they do. So uh, that's where they are today. And again, I'm happy that it means that I get to come and to hang out with you for a few minutes this morning. I'll uh, tell you a little bit more about myself. Again, my name is Andrew. Uh, I am also originally from Florida before I moved to Arizona, where we lived in Phoenix for 18 years. And then two and a half years ago, we moved here to Ohio to work for LifePoint. So I had hot and humid, and then I had hot and dry, and now I have gray and misty, apparently. Whatever this is today, uh, we've just, we've experienced all the weathers. Uh, I am married. Uh, my wife's name is Alyssa. We've been married for just over 10 years. I'll talk about that a little bit more uh, in just a few minutes. And we have two sons. Our oldest son, his name is Caleb, and he's eight. And our youngest son is five years old, and his name is Colton. And personally, I have been loving this Revelation series that we've been in, and I hope that you have been enjoying it as well. Uh, for me, like, don't, you, I'm going to tell you a lot of things this morning that you could judge me on. I'm just trusting that you're not going to judge me, but I'll tell you the truth. I've been loving this series because for most of my life, I grew up in church. I never paid attention to the book of Revelation. It wasn't until I went to seminary and said, they said, you have to, that I did. And so for most of my life, I just didn't, I just didn't really pay much attention to it. And I think that's because to me, reading Revelation has kind of felt like, have you ever been in a conversation with two people uh, and you're like trying to be the third person in the conversation and they just have a bunch of like inside jokes and references that you just don't understand? You're like, I have no idea what they're saying right now. They're talking completely over my head. That's kind of what Revelation felt like to me. Like, for example, you know, uh, maybe a couple of months ago now, my wife and I, uh, we were doing the thing that I guess is, is all life is in your 30s. We were uh, looking for a new show to watch uh, because we couldn't watch The Office for a thousandth time in a row. So you had to find something else to watch. And so we, we open up uh, Disney Plus. We're trying to find a show. And uh, we, we find this new Star Wars show called Ahsoka. And uh, we, we tried to watch it. 
But I didn't really get it. I didn't really understand. There was like more to the story that I just, I wasn't familiar with. So I went to my, one of my friends, also my coworker, and I went to him and I said, hey, I did the thing that you should not do, but I did it because I thought it would be funny. I wanted to see his reaction. I said, hey, we tried to watch it. I just didn't really get it. Honestly, I think it's kind of lame. And uh, I sent him into this uh, massive rant where for the next, you know, the first thing he did is he called me a fake fan. Uh, he's like, you don't even know what you're talking about. He's like, you need to, if you want to watch, you got to read this comic book and watch this YouTube video and watch this animated series. Like, just right over my head. Like, I didn't even, uh, I didn't even, you ever been a part of a conversation like that before? You're like, I have no idea what's going on. I literally don't know what this person's saying. That's exactly what it can feel like to try and read Revelation for the first time. And for good reason. There are 22 chapters in the book of Revelation. And in those 22 chapters, there are more than 400 references to the Old Testament. That's an average of 18 Old Testament references per chapter. The average chapter length in Revelation is only 18 verses. So on average, as you're reading Revelation, every single verse you read has a reference in it to something that happened in the Old Testament, which is why it can be so hard for us to wrap our mind around everything that we're reading and we're learning in this series, because in order to understand Revelation, it requires a deep understanding of the Old Testament, right? It makes, makes sense. Fortunately, though, for you and for me today, because I have to talk about it, the goal of this series has not been to try and flesh out all 400 of those Old Testament references. The goal of this series has been to try to help us see that Revelation is more about a present hope than a future calendar. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to jump into Revelation chapter 19 and 20. If you have a Bible with you, Bible app on your phone, you can take it out, open up to Revelation 19 if you want to join us there. And we're going to cover a lot of scripture today, all right? But all I want you to do, I think my goal for you today is that you would just try to keep this in the front of your mind, that you would continue to ask yourself this question this morning. How does what we are reading in Revelation today give us hope today? So let's do that. We're gonna jump into chapter 19. We're gonna start in verse 11, where we're gonna read about the return of Christ, and I'll kind of give you some commentary along the way. Here we go. We'll start in verse 11. It says this. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Right? So then I saw heaven opened. Then I saw means we've kicked off another vision from John. The vision begins with heaven opened a white horse. The one sitting on the horse is called faithful and true. This is a reference uh, that I believe that we talked about earlier in Revelation Right away, it's a dead giveaway to us that this is Jesus that we're talking about, right? So the one sitting on the white horse is called Jesus. And in righteousness, Jesus judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems, right? So again, another reference to other parts of Revelation where you have the beast and the dragon and the false prophet and all these characters pretending to be calling themselves God figures. But here, the one who's actually wearing the royal diadem, the only person who is fit to be king is the person who just showed up on the white horse, and that is Jesus. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Again, this is another reference to his, his kingship. In ancient times, the ability to name something typically meant that you owned that thing. You had ownership rights if you got to name it, right? So if I, if I name my kids in ancient times, that means I own them. Or if I name my pet dragon or whatever, that means that I, that I own it. It's mine. 
So the fact that Jesus shows up, the king shows up in royal diadems with a name that no one knows but himself means that he is the end of the line. There's nobody else who owns him. There's nobody else who has a claim to him. The king is here. Verse 13 says, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Notice the blood is on his robe before the battle. This is probably in reference to Jesus as the slain lamb, his blood shed for us, which we talked about throughout this series. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. Verse 14, and the armies of heaven are arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following on white horses. So the, the part of Revelation 19 that we didn't read, those first 11 verses, is what we call the marriage supper of the Lamb. And there Jesus is standing in a room and there are elders and all these different figures and all the people in attendance at the wedding are wearing white linen, fine linen. So here it's these people. It's, we could say, we could uh, make a leap here and say that this army is like the army of believers, the army of people who believe that Jesus is the son of God who have died, right? So the army of, uh, they're following Jesus in fine linen, white and pure. We're following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the almighty. We're gonna jump down now to verse 19. Here's what it says. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered together to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. Jumping down to verse 21, last one. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. What we just read about is the moment that all of human history has been pointing to, right? The second coming of Jesus when he returns and the ultimate end of evil itself. The first time Jesus came to earth, he rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. He was riding a donkey, right? A king riding on a donkey symbolizes peace. This time, the second time Jesus will come to earth, he will be riding on a white horse. A king riding on a horse represents a time of war. This means that the next time Jesus comes to earth, he will be coming to become its ruler once and for all. Right? It's this incredible picture of the return of Christ and his, his army of believers behind him that will be impossible to miss. Right? See, he captures the attention of the world. I just... I think about now, like, uh, live streaming is so good, right? Like, you can just see anything. I just imagine, like, Jesus is going to come, and every person in the world is going to have their iPhone 700 or whatever just aimed right at the sky, and so we're just watching it. It will be impossible to miss as he captures the attention of the world, and anyone who tries to stand up against him will be defeated by nothing more than his word. That's what it means, by the way, when it says that he has no weapon except for a long sword coming out of his mouth. Right? Because oftentimes I think that we can assume, right, that uh, we hear about the end of the world, right? Or we hear about the battle of Armageddon, as it's sometimes called, right? And we, we can wrongfully assume that at the end of time when Jesus comes again, there's gonna, it's gonna be like the modern version of Braveheart where the evil nations of the world are launching their nukes and Jesus is catching them and throwing them back and it's like some crazy thing. It's not that at all because the all-powerful, big, almighty God that created the universe with nothing but his word will rescue it with nothing but his word. Right? As, we, as we read these scriptures this morning, we see that Jesus is coming again and he will win the battle in the end. And that gives us such hope for our future. 
but it should also give us hope this morning in the present. Whatever situation that we're facing that feels crazy or feels out of control, right? Maybe we could, maybe we could say it this way. As Christians, our future reality shapes our daily perspective, right? Like our, our future reality that we know that Jesus is coming again shapes the way that we handle, the way that we look at what it is that we're facing today. I'll give you, a, give you an example of this. Like I said earlier, uh, my wife and I earlier this year, we celebrated our 10-year wedding anniversary and we got to go on this, uh, just this awesome vacation together without the kids. It was a, it was a really great time. Um, but it was one of those trips, I'm sure that you've had one of these before, where there was so much going on outside, so much going on in the real world, that it was hard to be fully present at times during our vacation. And I mean, like, I'm thinking about all of the, all of the problems that we need to solve, and all of the people things, and all of the work things, and all the, so much going on that it's not right when I'm, when I'm, you know, should be thinking about, like, oh, what a beautiful skyline. I'm thinking, when we get back to the real world, how is this all going to stop? What's the solution? So we're, so we had a great time, but I was also stressed out at points trying to solve these problems. And so we get to the end of our, we get to the end of our vacation, and we, are, uh, we get in the airplane, and we're flying back home. It's late at night. We're tired. We're stressed out. And I will add to this equation that I do, again, judge me if you want, I do not like flying. Not a fan. You can like it all you want. I do it because I have to, but I don't enjoy it. There's something to me that is extremely unsettling about being 30,000 feet in the air in a metal tube with no parachute. Like, I don't, I don't love it. You can love it. That's great. It's, it's, it's fine. So all that to say, we're in the middle of this plane ride as our vacation's coming to a close, and I'm on edge. I'm on edge. Then the pilot comes over the intercom, and he says, ladies and gentlemen, we are almost home. <laughs> Sweet. Like I was so like, okay, oh, big sigh of relief. And he says, but, <laughs> oh, I hate this part. But he says, if you want to see a show, just open up your windows because we are now flying through the middle of a lightning storm. And I was terrified. All of a sudden, I am freaking out. I am not a fan. Like, people are opening up the windows on the airplane, and I'm like, oh, oh, it looks like these, like, flash grenades are going. It is so bright, right? Like, what is happening as we somehow have found the source of all lightning itself with our airplane? I mean, it, this is where it comes from. We, I feel like I could reach out and grab a lightning bolt, and I am, immediately, I'm like, wait, can we... Why did we not, we could have voted to go around it. Like this feels like a very casual way for the airline pilot to tell us that we're all about to die. But he's just like, he's going, just enjoy it, right? I will even say again, you could, you could judge me, but it's funny that it happened here. We're flying over from our 10 year wedding anniversary and probably for the first time in our 10 years of marriage, my wife, she opens the window and she's trying to explain to me why everything is okay and I shouldn't be worried. And I was just like, just, just shut up. All right, just leave me alone. I'm freaking out. Just like... I did. I deeply apologized. Uh, I deeply apologized. But we're in this moment, and I'm freaked out. I'm terrified. I don't know what to do. So I do the only thing that I think I could do. I just start to pray. Right? It sounds spiritual, but it's really not as spiritual as I'm making it sound. I I start to pray. I'm in the middle seat. There's like you know my wife is here. There's nobody over here, and I just close my eyes, deep breath, and I start to pray. These are the three things that I remember praying. You're going to think I'm making this up. I am not. I am ashamed of this. But, well, I'm kind of ashamed of it. But here's, here's what I was feeling in the moment. Here's my three prayers. The first one I said, God, just let our kids know that we love them. <laughs> like I was, I was convinced that we were going to die, okay? The second thing I prayed, I said, God, 
You're going to think I'm making it up. I'm not. I said, God, please don't let us feel it when we hit the ground. (laughs) Just don't let it hurt, all right? God, if you could just do anything, just don't let it hurt. And then the third thing I prayed is, just forgive me. Lord, just just forgive me. Like, one last time, can we just make sure we're on the same page here? Like, God, just, just forgive me. I was terrified. I was terrified. And all of a sudden, in the middle of the airplane, God met me where I was. In the middle of the airplane, all of a sudden, I just get, get, just get hit with like this overwhelming sense of peace. Everything else goes away. My heart rate begins to calm. I just feel God say so clearly in this moment, Andrew, trust me. Trust me. I'm like, okay, okay, God, I get it. I need to trust you. The plane is gonna land. I get it. I'm like, no, 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 no. You gotta trust me with everything. And all of a sudden, in the middle of the airplane, in the middle of the night, in the middle of my freak out moment, in the middle of the worst lightning storm of all time, I still believe God meets me where I am. And all of a sudden, all of these different situations that I'm facing and these problems that I'm facing start to run through my mind. And I realize that it took a lightning storm for God to get me to see that the solution to everything I'm facing, including a lightning storm, is the exact same solution. I need to do what I can, and I need to genuinely trust God with the rest even if it doesn't look the way that I want it to look, right? As we, as we read this passage in Revelation, you just read it with me, we know how the story ends, right? We get it. We know how the story ends. We know that in the end, Jesus will win the day and that should inspire us to trust him with our future, for sure. But it should also inspire us to trust him today, right? Right here in this moment, because if he is big enough to, be, to defeat all of evil with just a word, then God is more than big enough to be trusted with whatever it is that you're facing today. Right, so, so what is that for you? What is it that you brought in here this morning that's stressing you out, that you're worrying about, that you're trying to solve, that, that you're, it's taking your mind off of everything because the big, all-powerful God of the universe is meeting you where you are this morning and saying, trust me, I know that it may not look the way that you want it to look right now. It may not turn the way that you want it to turn. But you can trust me. Here's a question to ask yourself this morning. How is our future reality that Jesus wins shaping your daily perspective? That's what we mean when we say that Revelation is far more about a present hope than it is about a future calendar. But, but then, we, then we read passages like the one that we're about to read in chapter 20, and it has a special kind of way of helping us forget everything that I just talked about and getting our heads right back onto trying to figure out how the world is going to end. Uh, this next passage that we're about to read has become a huge topic of conversation for people who read Revelation to try to figure out how everything is going to end. And it's not wrong. It, is, it, it makes sense that we're curious, right? We want to know. There's something wrong with that. We want to know how the book is going to end. We want to know how the movie is going to end. We want to know what presents we're going to get for Christmas. We want to know. We don't like the suspense. It makes sense that we want to know. It's just not the main point. That being said, we'll talk about it. Let's jump into Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, and we'll pick up the story from there. Verse 4 says this. And I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. 
They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. So from this first portion of Revelation chapter 20 and from this reference to a thousand years of Christ's reign, there are three primary theologies that have emerged. Entire theologies based around just these verses with hopes to gain clarity on the rule and reign of Christ in the context of his return. We'll keep with the airplane theme here. I'm gonna give you the 30,000 foot view of these three things in just a couple of minutes, just to kind of fill you in on, on what people think from, this, from these verses, okay? The first theology is what, what has been come to be known as premillennialism. Premillennialism is based on a literal reading of these passages. Essentially, premillennialists believe that at some point in the future, after a period of tribulation, Jesus is going to return on earth in the flesh to reign on earth for a thousand years. So let's say Jesus comes back in the year 3000. He's going to reign on earth from the year 3000 to the year 4000 before he begins the eventual restoration and newness of all things, which we'll talk about next week in Revelation chapter 21 with Matthew. A couple of uh, people, if you've read much in Christianity, a couple of people that adhere to this view that maybe you've heard of before are guys like John Piper or uh, a couple hundred years ago, somebody like Charles Spurgeon, uh, if you've heard either of those names. The second theology that comes out of here is one called amillennialism. Ah means the negation of, so essentially no millennium. But amillennialists don't actually believe that there's no millennium. They just believe that we are currently in that process, right? So they don't believe it's a literal thousand years. They believe it's figurative. It, it just references a long time. Like when you tell your kids you're grounded forever, but it's really like a day and a half, you know what I'm saying? Like that's kind of what they, what they believe. They believe that it started, the thousand years started at Jesus's resurrection, and we are currently in it, and it will end when Jesus ultimately returns in the future. Again, if you've read much in Christianity, people who held to this view are guys like Augustine, Calvin, and Luther, if you've heard those names. The third one is what we would call post-millennialism, and post-millennialists believe that Jesus is coming back at the end of this thousand-year period that we are already in, just like the previous few. If you talk to an amillennialist and a post-millennialist for two minutes, you would probably have a hard time, it would be like this. You'd have a hard time figuring out what the difference between these two things is because they both believe that Jesus is coming at the end of this thousand years. One of the key differences, not the only difference, but one of the key differences between these two groups tends to be what they believe is going to happen to Christianity during that thousand-year reign while we're waiting for Jesus to come back again. Post-millennialists tend to take a more optimistic perspective, and they say they believe that Christianity is going to continue to grow and grow and grow until Jesus's eventual return. A couple of people who adhere to this view are guys like Jonathan Edwards or Charles Hodge, if you've heard of either of those names. All that to say, there are very godly, very incredible leaders who have fallen on every different side of the equation. And as a church, we would say that if this is something that you're interested in, you should absolutely research it thoughtfully and read as much as you can to try to figure out where you stand between those three things. But I know what you're probably wondering. You're probably wondering, well, what does Matthew think? 
And for that, you're just going to have to ask him next Sunday because uh, I'm not going to speak for him. You could just ask him. I will tell you, for me, I tend to lean more towards the fourth option, which we refer to as pan-millennialism, which means that I believe in the end it's all going to pan out and everything is going to be okay. That's, I'm perfectly content to just wait and see what happens, and that's all I'll say on that. In all seriousness, though, in all seriousness, I think this can be one of those moments in Scripture. I'm sure you've had one of these, right? You read something and you go, man, why did God just not give us all the answers, right? It feels like with another, another comma or another period or a couple extra words added, he could have just cleared this whole thing up for us. We go, why, why did he not just add more here? We, we will never know the full answer until we get to meet Jesus and ask him himself, but I Here's what I think is part of it, at least. I think as humans, we want a calendar, but God wants a relationship, right? I think that we want to know how everything is going to play out, right? So that we can make our plans based on God's plans, and everything will just work perfectly, and it'll be awesome. But what God wants from you, what God wants from me is a daily relationship where we are walking out and working out our faith with him every single, just one day at a time. Which leads us right to this final section of Revelation chapter 20. We'll start in verse 11. And here we kind of see the ultimate benefit of a relationship with God. Here's what it says in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were Open. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what is written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So here, John has another vision. Right, But this time, it's the judgment day that, again, so much of the Bible has pointed to. As all of humanity, every member of humanity is called to stand before the throne of God, and every person is held accountable for their sin. As Christians, we often uh, say that, that we aren't judged by our works. Maybe you've heard us say that before. Right, which is true. We believe that you and I could not possibly be good enough to earn a relationship with God. We like to say that as, as Christians, we are saved by faith alone. But here, we just read it, right? In Revelation chapter 20, it says, the end of time, all humans will be called to be held accountable for their sin. So which one is it? This is why our understanding of the gospel is so important. Because when we say that we are in Christ, what we mean is that when we are st in this moment, standing before the throne of God, as Christians, we aren't judged by our works. We are judged by Jesus's work for us, right? We like to say that as, as Christians, we are saved by faith alone through Christ and his work alone. Listen, I know it is 1117 in the morning, but this is good news, right? This should be good news that gets us up in the morning, that excites us every single day. It is good news that we aren't judged by our works, that we're judged by Jesus' works for us, right? I think uh, 
I mentioned earlier, I'm, I'm one of the student pastors of the Lewis Center campus. And as a student pastor, it seems like part of my job description is that I have to make all of the good news, bad news calls for our student ministry. If something goes wrong, I've, I got to make the call. So a couple of, couple of weeks ago, we had our big fall event on October 1st. It was awesome. We had students from all six of our campuses join us at the Lewis Center campus for this big color war. It was great. That includes, we had more than 30 students from here at the Westerville campus that came and joined us, which is great. I would tell you, if you are a 6th through 12th grade student in here this morning, you have got to come to be a part of what we're doing. You are missing out. We would love to have you come. We meet at Westerville. We meet during the third service. It's awesome. Zach is awesome. It's great. We have great times together. We'd love for you to come. And this night, of all of the nights, was fantastic. I've, in fact, I have some, some pictures that I'll show you on the screen behind me to just give you some more context. Uh, so what, what I say when we say we had a color war. So that night, we had, as you can see, a 1,000 pounds of color powder. 1,000 pounds of color powder with more than 400 students in attendance. Just this huge thing. It was totally awesome. And as right as we're about to start, I'm standing in the middle of this whole field that we've made. We like fenced it off and everyone's counting down. The energy is crazy. Three, two, one, go. And all of a sudden the students do what they're supposed to do. They start throwing the powder at each other, which by the way, if you've never been to a color war, you're probably right now wondering why? Because it's fun. That's why. I don't know. I don't, it's just a good time. I don't, I don't know. So you, it's like a food fight, but with powder. So I guess it makes it fun. So we, we're having a great time. Students are throwing it. And all of a sudden, a giant dust cloud begins to form, which, I mean, makes sense, right? We got a 1,000 pounds of powder and we threw it in the air. We're going to make a bit of a dust cloud. The thing that we could not have prepared for was that the wind picked up. And it began to blow our dust cloud directly towards the 23, right towards it, right? The freeway right in front of the church, cars, the speed limit's 55 miles an hour, cars are just zooming back and forth, and we are sending a dust storm directly that direction. So I stand back and I watch, and after a couple of minutes go by from where I'm standing, it looks like we have covered the entire, we have closed down the 23 because it is so bad. No one can see anything. Everything is at a stop. We're freaking out. Like, oh no, right? It's another panic moment for me where I was like, huh. back to Arizona. We had a good run, Ohio. Like, I don't, I don't, it's gonna, life point just caused the, you know, traffic, jet, like, oh no, this is gonna be bad. So in that moment, I did what I do in that moment. And I'm the good news, bad news guy. So I call Adam. Adam is our administrative pastor. And Adam tends to be the guy that I call when the police are probably going to be called. All right. So we do have a guy for that. And he typically gets calls for me. So I call Adam. What a great job he has, by the way. So I call Adam. Adam, good news. Good news is that everybody's okay. The bad news is I'm not sure how long that's going to continue to be the case. So you should probably get down here. <laughs> like, okay, I'll, I'll be right over, right? Heads over. Now, flash for, fast forward to the end of the story. It turned out awesome. Everything was okay. God did another miracle as the wind, he parted the 23, as we would say, and the, the wind, <laughs> the dust storm blew directly towards it and then just like went up over the road and off into the distance. Nobody was called. Nobody got hurt. No businesses were mad. No drivers were mad. No parents were mad. We're good. We're golden. It was awesome. We had a great time. A bunch of kids gave their life to Jesus. It was such a great, such a great night together, but it was definitely a good news, bad news situation. As we, as we read the Bible, 
I think it can be so easy for, especially as we read Revelation, it can be so easy for us to read the Bible and feel like so much of the Bible is bad news, right? We read Revelation, we just read them, right? We see the buzzwords like uh, death and justice and judgment and eternity and hell and sin and lake of fire. And we go, <laughs> kind of feels like you tell people like, hey, don't read that one, just read the other ones. Like it's, it feels like so much of this is bad news. But the truth is that after Genesis 3, 24, when Adam and Eve sinned, sin enters the world, the consequences of sin enter the world, Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. After Genesis 3, 24, every single word that you read in the Bible after that is good news. It is good news this morning that when death is what we deserved, Jesus stepped in. It is good news this morning that when eternity in hell is what we deserved, that eternity with God is still an option, right? We, we read these words in this passage and we can go, man, we get to trust God with our future and we get to trust him in the present. It is good news. It's good news that inspires us to trust him and to worship him, right? We, we worship a God who loved us enough that he sent his only son to die for us so that you and I can experience freedom. We can experience forgiveness, that we get to experience relationship with him, which is why we're gonna end our service this morning. No better way to end our service this morning than by celebrating communion together, right? Communion is the, is the ceremony when we celebrate the good news. We celebrate Jesus's body broken for us and his blood shed for us. Communion is meant to drive us towards repentance, towards turning. It's meant to drive us back to God, to celebrating the good news, but not out of guilt and not out of shame. We celebrate communion. It is a celebration of a God who loved us enough that he gave everything, sacrificed everything. So this morning, I'm gonna pray, and then we will celebrate communion together. I mean... Let me pray for us. God, we are so thankful. You are too good to us. But this morning as we read these passages, I'm so thankful that there is good news. That sin and our mistakes and our failure weren't the end of the story. God, that we can gather today 2,000 years later and we can celebrate your love for us and we can trust you because you are holding the future, but you're also holding the present. So God, if there's people in the room today that don't have a relationship with you, I pray that today they would make that decision, that they would begin a relationship with you, that they would, that they would ask you to forgive them, that they would ask you to become the Lord of their life, that they would begin to follow you. Lord, I pray for all of us no matter what we're facing today, no matter what has us stressed out, that we would remember that we can trust you with everything. God, we love you so much. God, I love you so much. In your name.